another great episode of the Ortho Show podcast where we feature Patrick St. Pierre. He's become a dear friend of mine. He is an orthopedic surgeon, shoulder specialist out of Rancho Mirage, California. Uh, he was in the Army for upwards of 24 years, uh, transitioned to private practice. Uh, his history and his story through uh, West Point and all of his Army training is really fa fantastic. He's really become a true leader in, in shoulder uh, arthroplasty and rotator cuff uh, surgery out in California. And we just get to share uh, some great stories together. Lots of fun. Great episode. We have a big bet on the Army-Navy football game as well. I know you're going to love it. Hashtag follow the fro. This episode is brought to you by National Medical Billing Services. As the largest and most experienced outsourced provider of end-to-end -end revenue cycle management services, National Medical is an award-winning company that serves hundreds of ambulatory surgery centers, surgical practices, and anesthesia groups nationwide. National Medical Surgical Revenue Cycle Specialists, deep understanding of orthopedic procedures and numerous specialties help alleviate staffing concerns often faced by surgical organizations in today's marketplace. National Medical's managed care contracting team negotiates new and renegotiates outdated payer rates to maximize your reimbursement, while its cutting-edge workflow technology, proprietary processes, and analytics drive superior financial results for surgical organizations. Go to nationalmedicalascbilling.com to access National Medical's orthopedic case study and find out how a strategic partnership with National Medical can triple your annual revenue and increase your patient satisfaction in the process. For more information on how National Medical optimizes coding, billing, and reimbursement practices, visit nationalascbilling.com or call National Medical at 866-319-3271. That number again is 866-319-3271. Go to nationalascbilling.com today to request a complimentary revenue cycle assessment. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, it's Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. And in, it is no exception. We have a dear friend of mine today, Dr. Patrick St. Pierre, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. He's the director of sports medicine orthopedic research at the Eisenhower Medical Center in the uh, Rancho Mirage, California in the desert. Patrick, it is always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure, Scott. Glad to be here. Good to see you again. Yeah, thank you. You as well. We got to see each other at OSET. That was a lot of fun. One of our favorite courses that we all like to go to. Kevin and Brian Bisconi did a great job, as usual, putting that one on. And uh, so let's talk about the beginning. You know, I always like to start from the beginning. So you're a military guy. We'll get there. But when and where did you did sort of orthopedics and medicine come in? Was it early? Because you committed to, to the Army for, for West Point. But when did medicine come into play? Well, it's an interesting story because uh, my mom had heart disease. So I was always uh, interested in medicine from the beginning. And when I made the decision to go to West Point, they had just stopped the medical school program. So I really kind of gave it up. And and so I concentrated or took, um, 
you know, we didn't have majors back then. So we had concentrations because we all had engineering degrees. So I did um, uh, construction engineering and I was going to do that, but my junior year, they uh, restarted the medical school program. So I switched my electives so I could take organic chemistry and biology and all the prerequisites. And um, so I was set up to go to medical school. And then because, you know, West Point is a leadership type of program and uh, I was being encouraged not to go to medical school and saying, oh, you got to go rah, rah army. So I decided to go in the infantry and, um, and it was only after going in infantry, I decided I really loved medicine and wanted to go back. All right. So, so, so where'd you grow up? Just so we know, we didn't get that, that far at the beginning. Where, where, what, what state, where were you? Well, we sort of had ties. I think we've talked about this before. My parents are from Lowell. So, oh, that's uh, right. That's but right. I didn't live in Lowell. My dad was in the Air Force. So we traveled around the world and, and I lived all over the place as a kid. But when my dad retired uh, from the Air Force uh, to be close to Lowell and all of my mom's relatives, uh, we went to Hudson, New Hampshire, which is right across the border. So yeah. 30 minutes up the road. Yeah, dude, That's you could have you to, could have finished my school. cases for me today. I was running late. You could have run my second room I, for I me. I know. <laughs> I would have much rather you see my patients do <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, so that so that's awesome. So, all right. So you're thinking it's going to be medical school. Um, you get into West Point, which is an amazing feat, right? I mean, the academies, it takes a tremendous amount of energy and effort. You gotta get letters from a senator and a congressman to represent. And so you get in, which is amazing. You're thinking medical school, they take medical school away. And then now all of a sudden they're saying you can go to medical school, but you graduate in 1980. So you're active duty at that point, infantry, and you're you're in the real world in the army at that moment. Right. So I went to I had already done airborne school as a cadet, uh, but I went to ranger school and uh, went to infantry and led combat patrols in the DMZ in Korea uh, for a year. And then while I was in Korea, I decided that there was no way I was going to just do that for 20 something years. It just wasn't where my heart was. And so I, I, I was supposed to go back to the 82nd Airborne and I switched my assignment to the old guard in Washington, D.C., thinking that I'd have a little bit more time to study for my MCATs and do all that. So um, so when I got back to D.C. area, I was able to interview for medical school and eventually um got my way in. But in the meantime, I was doing ceremonies at the White House and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and a lot of things around the Washington, D.C. area. Wow, that's really cool, right? To be able to do that sort of, that doesn't fall into your CV. So I love getting those kind of details because that's part of the story is always quite remarkable. You were were knee deep in the Army, really doing amazing stuff, including active duty and, and amazing. And then, so now you get into, you get into medical school, uniform services, medical school, uh, is ready to roll. And at that point, you're thinking medicine, but I haven't heard the word orthopedics yet. I mean, when did that start uh, bubbling so, up for you? You know, I think a lot of us are athlete, athletic in, in nature, and we've had lots of injuries, and that certainly played a part. Um, but I was really drawn because of my mom. I really thought I was going to be a cardiologist. And uh, it really was in my junior year, right before um, making selections, um, I was, well, actually it was even after that, but, um, so I had back-to-back rotations doing cardiology at Walter Reed army medical center and doing, uh, a sports medicine rotation up at West point. So I could go back to West point. So, uh, so the first one, um, was, um, cardiology and, and back then you could smoke in hospitals. And so the head of the cardiology, uh, the cath lab was a chain smoker in his office. 
smoking and um but he was the guy running the cath lab they still hadn't weren't able to put stents in or anything else like that so uh, so i'm standing outside of this you know cloud smoked room and seeing the patients who um you know lots of times weren't eating right we're smoking and weren't exercising and they're blaming their doctor for their disease and then then i get to go back up to west point and um and take care of West Point cadets. And I started some studies and I, I did a study on synosmosis sprains of the ankle, which got published. And, um, and if you actually, want to do, if you want to do an ankle study, you have to be a part of the military academy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Every single one has always been done out, out of the two military academies for sure. I love it. So after those two rotations, it was very clear to me that I wanted to, um, uh, to do orthopedics and in particular sports medicine. I remember my first uh, ACL reconstruction. It was an open ACL reconstruction and we go through the whole case and I'm helping the surgeons do it. And I, and I said, after that case, I said, I could do this for the rest of my life. And yeah, sure enough, I started out that way, but eventually switched to shoulders. You know, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, the military academies are this captured population, right? I mean, you can't help but have them go through the rehab protocols that you want to. They have to show up for follow-up. And so for our listeners out there, many of the great orthopedic studies that have been done, for example, in shoulder dislocation, really come out of these military academies because you follow these these kids so well in in their training. uh, And also, they don't have an option about what level of activity they go back to. I think that's the biggest thing is you can't fake it. You can't say, well, you know, I feel okay, but I'm not going to go back and play football. I'm not going to go play rugby or hockey. You know, you have a very intense uh, physical training program that you have to do. You have to do obstacle courses. Our our indoor obstacle course was a shoulder dislocation machine. In fact, when I was there, I went back again later on uh, before I did my residency and we would block out OR time just to fix all these acute shoulder dislocations because they would, they would come out and we'd have to fix them. But the cadets, um, you know, everybody's pretty independent. I mean, these are smart guys and gals and, um, you know, we always make it like they follow the rules all the time. They actually tend to break the rules a lot. So as far as going back too quickly, uh, that's always our biggest concern is that they, they push things a little bit too fast than what we recommend, but they don't have a choice about going back to doing stuff unless they leave. Right. Yeah, and, and that's the personality, right? If you're if you're driven to go to one of the military academies in our country, you're going to have a driven personality. Most of them are athletic, you know, they're go-getters, they're straight A students, they want to accomplish as much as they can, so it makes sense that they want to get back, you know, as quick as they can. So so then it's off to 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 Washington, man. You cannot get out of the army, man. You are <laughs> you are stuck. So you go do your residency out of Madigan Army uh, Center in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, that must have been a great time for you as well, breeding ground, training, et cetera. Yeah, and uh, and that was actually during um, Gulf War too. So uh, especially the first Gulf War, the, the way the military ran, it, they sent all of the active duty officers. And then they, uh, so all the people who were, um, you know, my teachers and instructors in the residency program, they all went to Iraq and they backfilled with uh, some orthopedic surgeons that were in the reserves. Not, and and some of them grew, actually a couple of them were previous instructors in our program, so we had some history with them. Uh, but there was a gap where of about six months that we actually, because I was a junior uh, or a fourth year resident at that time, and we ran the program. And talk about learning under fire—you know, when you have you know, one attending 
managing and supervising an entire residency program and everybody else is gone, when you're a senior or a chief, you're, you're really taking care of, of everything. You grow up very fast. And that's kind of a huge benefit, I think, of that residency program is we got to do everything right away. And um, although there's a learning curve, um, we still were motivated to learn and make sure we we're doing the right things. No, you're deep in the trenches and you got There's no one else around. You got to get it done. That reminds me of, you know, part of my time at the VA in my residency as well. I mean, like if you went to the VA uh, and, and, you know, as a senior or chief resident and you weren't prepared, you know, you'd have an attending that would show up here and there, but half the time, you know, they didn't, they weren't really adept. And so you're, you've got to figure that all out. And that's really where you, you learn to be a surgeon. And, and I think that's, uh, that's tremendous. It makes a lot of sense knowing, you know, how, how amazing you are and talented you are. It really makes a lot of sense that in the earliest, you know, phases of your career, you had great responsibility. Um, all right. So then it's, uh, so, you, so, so Washington's great. You've learned a lot, uh, but you're now, you're going to come on back and you're going to Walter Reed, you do a fellowship, and then you also head back to West Point to do a sports medicine fellowship. So again, the army continues to call. Yeah. So uh, the residency program was, was interesting because the, uh, the West Point Sports Medicine Fellowship, which is now named after John Fagan, who is really the godfather of, of all military sports medicine, um, was a two-year fellowship. And you did a year of research first. And initially, it started out at um, in the Presidio in California uh, at Letterman Army um, Medical Center. But they shut that down. And I was the interim year between moving it between... Um, Letterman in San Francisco to San Antonio, Texas, where it is now. And the um, and so I got to go to Walter Reed instead. And I did the Walter Reed Army uh, Research Fellowship. So I was one of eight people in a class and all seven were all medicine researchers and different things. And I got uh, to get together with the guys at Walter Reed and uh, we decided to do a GOAT study. And uh, what they had tried to do before is they're trying to determine tendon healing to bone. Well, now, first and, of all, we get, hold on. We got to wait a second here. Now, <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, the goat is the mascot for the United States Naval Academy, if I'm not correct. Yeah, but this is being recorded, so I can't say that. <laughs> all right, we'll <laughs> let it slide. But go. So you're doing a goat study in the Army. There's a little concern from our Navy brothers, but go for it. Yeah, so, um, well, before that, they tried to do it in um, in rabbits, but the rabbits would eat their casts. So, um that didn't work out very well. So I happened right at the beginning of the fellowship, uh, met Steve Arnosky. And so I told him our dilemma. And he said, you know, the goat has uh, two heads to its supraspinatus tendon. So you could take off one head, leave the other one, and they'll limp around a little while, but they're not going to put a lot of stress in that repair. So it's a great model to study tendon healing. So that's exactly what we did. So out at, um, at uh, Fort Detrick, Maryland, which is the... Um, it's, there's a large animal farm, but that's our infectious disease capital and this, where we study, you know, biological weapons and different things like that. So it's the Wuhan of the United States. And, but they had a large animal farm. So I was able to get out there and I talked to these guys. I said, well, you know, I like to do a study. And so we did it in goats and um, we took the tendon off and repaired it. And really, I thought I was just going to prove that McLaughlin was right, that rotator cuffs are supposed to be prepared to a trough made in the bone. And that's the way we did it back then. And so we repaired it right back to cortical bone. And sure enough, I, we proved the hypothesis wrong. And we found out that we didn't have to make a trough in the bone. And right at the same time, uh, rotator cuff anchors were coming out. And so um, 
So this is a study of one. I ended up being a distinguished graduate from the research program because it did so well. It got published in JBJS. No, that, I mean, that's a really cool thing. It's a very important study. And again, so our listeners, because we have, so, you know, my mother Judy's listening too. So we have to make <laughs> it so people understand. So, you know, what, what we're saying here is that we thought that you had to sort of make a hole in the bone and then put the tendon into it. But, you know, what Dr. St. Pierre has has managed to, to prove at that stage was that you just have to lay it on top. And that's when rotator cuff repair really took off. It became yep. something what's very common now that we think of. I love the fact that you brought up Steve Ornosky. We we love shout outs on the on the ortho show. Steve is a veterinarian. And literally, if you have any kind of a biologic process in the world and you want to get it commercialized, you got to have Steve Ornosky on your team. We'll have to get Steve on the show. If you're listening, Steve, we're going to give you a call. Uh, so that's awesome. But now, all right, so your right, so your research geek year is over. You make it to JBJS. You're, you're kicking ass and taking numbers. You're going to do your sports fellowship. You go to West Point, and you get you get moved around a lot with this program, which I like. You go to Duke, and then you're with Russ Warren, one of the greats, who, by the way, we're interviewing on Thursday, which I love. Oh, really? We love the continuity. You're taking care of the New York Giants in 1995 with Russ Warren and team. What a great year. Uh, and tell us about your fellowship. Yeah, well, the fellowship really was at West Point again, and we did a two-month rotation. So actually, I, um, I had an elective. That's how I got down to Duke, and because John Fagan was down there. So I did get to go down there, and, and just by chance, I made that rotation during the basketball season. So I uh, got to be down there at the end of the awesome. ACC tournaments. Didn't get to work with Russ on the field with the Giants at all, but did get to work with him in the OR. So and. Uh, and because of the rotator cuff study and the, the shoulder exposure at HSS, that really is what kind of pushed me to the shoulders. Um, although when I first got out after the fellowship, you know, we're in the military and it, it, it is sports medicine. And so you're doing ACLs and meniscal tear and scope and knees like crazy right from the beginning. And um, so I did quite a bit of that. And then um, and eventually, you know. 12 or 16 years later, after being in the military and, and doing sports and, and um, helping run the residency back at Madigan, when I went back to, uh, to Fort Lewis, Washington, um, I eventually switched to, uh, to doing more and more shoulders, but that took some time. Yeah, but and it, I find it fascinating because it seemed like early on in your military and army career, you recognized, you know, you did the infantry, you were really out there in the real world. And you thought, well, that's not necessarily for me, but medicine called you and you really stuck with the army for quite some time. I mean, you just dropped, you just mentioned that you went back to Tacoma uh, for five years where you were on staff there and helped with the residency program. And then you came back to Virginia again, still in the army at that point, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in around 2000. And then of course, you know, um, 9-11 happens in that process as well. So I wanted to talk about that because that's when you know, Operation Enduring Freedom is happening when you go to Afghanistan and you're still in. So how did that play out for you as far as your career? Yeah, so actually that was not a choice to stay in the Army because, you know, going to West Point, you you gain a five-year requirement that you don't pay off. And then medical school at Uniformed Services was seven more years. And your residency and fellowship time is neutral. So by the time I got to that point, my obligation kept me to being two years short of retirement. So my whole span of 24 years, you know, 22 were obligated and um, which turn out, you know, while you're going through that process, you know, you're saying, Oh my gosh, I want to be out. I want to be obviously making more money or being in the civilian world and being able to, to 
progress, but the, uh, the experience in military was great. And, you know, and, and we've had a lineage of people, you know, starting with John Fagan and Bob Arciero and Dean Taylor and, you know, uh, Matt the list goes, list goes on and on and on and amazing continued. So, um, but it was certainly difficult because it's socialized medicine in the military. You have a budget. And I remember the total uh, joint guys, they would be limited to doing four total joints in a week. And that was their max because it just costs more money. So it's like, there's no way I'm doing a joint fellowship. You know, why, why would you do that? So sports really did call. You know, I think that's an important lesson for, for our listeners as well, for the young medical students that are out there that are, you know, considering, or even, in, I should say, in college, uh, a military career post, that the the amount of time and energy that you have to put back is significant. I mean, the plus, obviously, is that you you are debt-free. Uh, you have no undergrad or medical school debt, which can be quite significant uh, for many people that do go through the regular process. So there's there's pluses and minuses. And as you said, We've interviewed, you know, no less than a, you know probably a half a dozen uh, military uh, docs on the Ortho Show, and to it to a person, they're all in the h- highest positions in societies. They're organized. They're leaders uh, in their in their field, as you are, uh, Patrick, as as well. And so it's just amazing to see the work ethic that's built into a career over time. And then it's great to have you jump into the private world with us and then share your experiences, you know, as well. And so, so did what were you again? Were you in active duty when when nine eleven and at that yeah, happened? Actually, Where, yeah, I was at um, I was at because right at that time I was just about ready to get out, and I had um, uh, worked my way to get an assignment at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, because uh, my wife was from Virginia, and that we're kind of being pulled that way, and so I was at uh, Fort Belvoir Hospital when nine eleven hit, and we had. The plane flying to the Pentagon. And I really, being an ex-infantry guy, wanted to go down to ground zero, but we were told that we had to stay at the hospital and be ready to take casualties. And as it turned out, we didn't get any because they all went to the uh, right next to the Pentagon. It was the Virginia Hospital Center, which eventually I went to work out. And when I retired from the military, I went there and the, joined Bob Nurschel's group. So um so that happened. You know, I had a couple of friends who were at the Pentagon, so, so and some got severely burned, but uh, no one died that day, so which is good. But obviously, it was an event that changed all of our lives. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And so um, you finally, you finally get out. You know, you you did it. You hit your twenty four years or twenty two years. And uh, one of the things that I'd love you to talk about is you did your ASCS Traveling European Fellowship. That had to have been, was it a six-month fellowship at the time? No, uh, it was six weeks. Yeah, six, uh, so which is longer now. I think they're all down to like three weeks because it's just such an impact. But the, the good thing about it for a military guy was you still get paid. You know, as long as you get the government to say, okay, you can go, you're still getting paid for being gone. So it was a great experience. I went with Bill Levine uh, from Columbia. And so the two of us, and this is a kind of a critical time, it was 2003, and the reverse shoulder replacement had not come out here in the United States, and but we knew it was coming. And so to go over to Europe and spend time with, um, you know, uh, Christian Gerber and Joe Walsh and everybody else, and, and you travel to like six or eight different places, and we did uh, and it was kind of scary because, you know, there were all the early Gramont designs and we saw a few of them come out, probably as many come out as go in. So 
uh, you know, the world was still working through the reverse and making it what it is today. And, um, but it was just an amazing experience. And anybody, I would encourage anybody who's listening, that's an orthopedic surgeon that has an opportunity to go on a traveling fellowship to definitely do that because it just exposes you to many of the leaders and makes that whole step. You know, you go up and talk to somebody at a, at a meeting, you know, if you've met them and you've been in their OR and stuff like that, you're really, you're part of the team now. And uh, that experience was very good. It was great to spend six weeks with Bill Levine, who's a, a great guy and a, and a tremendous leader um, for ASES and in and, and academics at, at Columbia. So this was a great experience all the way around. And you got to see some amazing surgeries, saw brachial plexus uh, avulsion that, you know, we, um, Professor Chelly put together and took grass from the leg and brag, you know, there's no way I'm going to do any brachial plexus surgery, but it's just <laughs> amazing to see that whole thing process take place. Well, I love it, you know, because I try to do all of my research as much as I can to whiteboard out, you know, every everybody that comes on the show. And Bill Levine, who is the official fact checker of the Ortho Show podcast, uh, you know, literally, I think it's one degree of separation for any guest to be able to get connected to Bill Levine. But we love him <laughs> dearly. Uh, thrilled that we get Bill's name out on this episode as well. He'll give us a great shout out. So from there, you, you head to Nurshall and you do a great, uh, you're with Georgetown doing the Sports Medicine Fellowship in Virginia. You're finally in private practice. You're having a great time there. And then eventually you decide you're going to go out West uh, to California to where you currently are at Rancho Mirage. And so why don't you just tell us about your practice and what you're doing now currently and, and what your practice involves? Cause we know you're primarily doing shoulder at this time. So when I, when I first came out here, I was recruiting, there's um, our shoulder, our sports medicine doc uh, decided to leave the practice. And so I came in doing sports, but as soon as I got here, I realized there's nobody here doing shoulders and all the shoulders were going to the coast. And uh, so within um, a year, I recruited another sports medicine guy and sort of said, well, I got to give him a bone to chew on. So I said, well, might you be the lower extremity sports guy? I'll give up my ACLs and you do hip arthroscopy because we didn't have that. And I'll just do shoulders. So it started out that way. And uh, and again, because the reverse had come out and I was had been to Europe. So they gave me experience with that. And, uh, and then I came into a population, uh, of retirees. So our patients are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, and as you know, I have done a lot of reverse shoulder replacements and talk about it all the time. And certainly in this population with motivated patients, my patients for reverses do just as well as any anatomic shoulder. And, and that's probably the biggest thing as far as debating the debate, whether you do an anatomic versus reverse shoulder, it's, it's my, my outcomes here have worked out so well. And I think it's a number of reasons, but uh, one of it's the patients are motivated and we've worked out a home exercise program that, that they can do. I um, kind of jumped to the, um, the lateralized design with uh, Mark Frankel fairly quickly. And I think that that's been a huge advantage because you avoided um, distalizing the humerus and uh, also avoided notching and some of the other complications. So our patients have done really, really well. And, and it's just a play. I mean, I, all I do now is shoulders. I don't, in fact, I brought a younger guy to do shoulders and he's taken over all the elbow. So I'm happy to let that go. And he does such a great job at the elbow. So it's uh it's really nice. And, uh, you know, and as we as, just have a great team here. 
It's That's awesome. I mean, and as we get older, what we find is that the more you know, the less you know, right? You become a master, an expert at the things that you do. And I think, you know, for the listeners, again, I think it's fascinating that you you saw the infancy of reverse total shoulder in Europe when you were doing your travel traveling fellowship with Bill. Uh, and then you've seen the evolution. When I was first in training, you know, it was filled with complications and issues, even in the best of hands. Uh, but there's really been a tremendous evolution in shoulder replacement now, whether, you know, again, for our listeners, whether the ball is on the is on the, the glenoid or the cup or whether the ball's on the humeral head on the other side, you know, that's really that where the discussion comes, whether your rotator cuff is intact or not. But I think that, again, when it comes down to this, it's reps, it's being a master, it's being able to, to generate outcomes that, that go great. So, you know, obviously... Um, there's some other cool new things. So what else? Give us another cool thing in shoulder that's exciting you right now, other than arthroplasty. Well, I'd say I got to stick with arthroplasty. Okay, so that's okay. I think better no than problem. anything is um, uh, I'm one of the six design surgeons helping Stryker and Mako develop a shoulder robotic um, replacement. So hips and knees are already out there and the Mako robot is leading the way in, in doing those replacements. And it's been, a, you know, it's a huge um, endeavor to take on something like this because, uh, you know, getting a, a robot approved, you have to have it so perfected that it it cannot on its own, even if people make mistakes, damage the patient. And so developing haptics so that you can put the robot in a certain position and identify the scapula and be able to, to do all that and protect it is, uh, is pretty amazing. And uh, so the so the the robot really is you know my biggest project that uh, I'll see to completion here and um, and just great guys who are part of it Mark Mile um, Joaquin Sanchez Sotelo uh, Sam Batunia from Spain George Athwell from Canada Brent Ponce from Alabama uh, so it's a great team of guys awesome. who are really working on it and then a whole level of another group you know underneath us that they have to test everything and and do it we're now we're in the uh, it's been. Um, submitted to the FDA, hopefully within the next 12 to 15 months or so, it'll start coming out and we'll you know, be able to process this. And it's interesting as an, as a master shoulder or, you know, replacement specialist, you really feel that the navigation that you're going to be getting and then the control of the robot will hopefully actually turn out to show improved patient outcomes uh, down the road, which is obviously, uh, you know, the the golden ticket if you can get there uh, or the Holy Grail, but we still have to, to see how that plays out. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's going to be different for different people. So, um, you know, for someone who does over 200 shoulder replacements a year, like I do, you know, for the basic case, probably it's not going to make, there's no way we can prove a difference. Uh, it, it does provide some accuracy. It also is going to allow you to do it with less uh, probably wear and tear. That's what the hip surgeons say all the time is the wear and tear on their bodies and doing lots of cases and through the day. And, you know, if you're starting a case at five o'clock, the patient wants you to be just as fresh as when you started at eight o'clock. So that's part of it. But for the surgeons who do lots of volume, it's going to be the revision cases, the bone loss cases, as you know, the glenoid is so small. So if you can, if you can plan virtually, the entire surgery the night before on the computer and put the bone and the screws exactly where you want to be and then go and reproduce that in the operating room. They'll be very helpful, but also to the guys who do general orthopedics, you know, there's a lot of people in this country and the world that don't get to do a lot of any of these surgeries and they have to be the guy for all orthopedics for their community and to help them if they're doing 
two or three shoulder replacements a month, you know, the robot and planning all that surgical planning and, and having that confidence to go in and do a great job for their patient is really where uh, it could be a huge benefit. You know, it's interesting. I just got named to the advisory board for Precision OS. So I did my first shoulder replacement in 25 years in my basement, in my gym the other day. <laughs> I have to say, it was really pretty cool. And so, you know, I think that VR in particular for surgeon training uh, is really going to be a major way in which we can, you know, get the reps that we need. And I think there's a natural uh, play to VR into to robotics as well, being able to control the rob robot, understand the haptics, knowing where you're positioning and doing things. So, so yeah, to Danny Goyle, our, our dear friend, Thanks for letting me do my first shoulder replacement in quite some time. And I, I actually got the green light. So I actually did pretty good for the first time in a while. But uh, no, look, Patrick, this is it's been amazing having you on. I know you've got a crazy day. You got to get back to the office. But uh, I do. I just have before we get before we close, I got to I got to like place out a little bet here with you going on, too. So December 10th is one of the greatest events in, in our country. The tradition of the uh, Army Navy football game. My family is all Navy. Go Navy! Uh, my first cousin's a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, plus a bunch of others. Uh, so I've got a standing. And I bet. used to like you. I know it's okay. I get it. <laughs> I've got a standing bet with with the the CEO of Miok, uh, Pat McBray. Brayer, we have a dinner bet. So I'm including you on this dinner bet. Okay. If Navy wins, I get to choose the dinner. If Army wins, you get to choose the dinner. How's that sound? That sounds like a deal. I love and it. Now you get to choose the wine. Uh, and of course, we didn't get to the wine, but you got to give us give us one quick tip. I know wine's such a broad specialty, but you know, I know you have some. Your passion is for shoulders, your family, and wine. So, just give us a quick tip on wine before we leave. Well, the wine—it's just a wine education. It's, it's been like fifteen years, so somewhere in my extra time, I've been studying wine. So now I have the diploma from the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and there's only eleven thousand people who've achieved that in, since 1969. And there's only one surgeon in the world who's done both being a surgeon and doing that. So it's kind of fun. It's always great to be the wine expert to go to dinners with people and pick out the wines and doing different things. But wine's just a fascinating subject. It's just, it's just like in medicine, there's, there's no way you can ever comprehend everything and, and learn it all, but it involves science and um, geography and history and all these different things that are a lot of fun to help pick people uh, up with the, the wines and spirit um, dinners. No, I love it. So regardless of who wins our bet for the Army-Navy game, you're picking the wine. How's that? That sounds good. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. Listen, Patrick, I just want to tell you, uh, I want to thank you for your service to our country, uh, to the tremendous contribution that you've made to orthopedics uh, within the shoulder space as well. You're an, a world-renowned leader in the process. You're on the greatest team for Mako. I really congratulate you on that. I know you guys are going to make a great product uh, there as well. And it's really been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks a lot, Scott. Beat Navy. Yeah. Go Army, Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time. Mm -hmm.